Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I'm your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Hey, if you are enjoying our podcast, uh, we've been doing it for years now, please consider circling over to iTunes for us and leaving a review. All right. Today, I am just thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to be interviewing Dr. Theo Herides. I'm so sorry, Dr. Theo. I don't want to mangle your beautiful name, meaning God's grace. But so Dr. Theo, we've been trying to get him booked on the program now for over a year. Um, you know, he's a brilliant clinician scientist. And let me give you his background. And we'll jump right in. He's professor of pharmacology and internal medicine, as well as the director of molecular immunopharmacology and drug discovery in the Department of Immunology at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. Uh, he was born in Greece and graduated with honors uh, from Anatolia College there. And then he went on to do all his graduate work at Yale University. Uh, he's in the Tufts School of Medicine now, where he's been teaching for some years, and he's you know, he's just received virtually every award that there is. It's actually kind of amazing reading his bio. Um, he's, he's a beloved teacher at Tufts. He's in about 15 um, academies and scientific societies. He has published in over 400 papers, folks, in really top-tier journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Nature, Proceedings of the Natural, uh, National Academy of Science, and he's published in Science. He's got a few textbooks under his belt and has many, many patents. Uh, his research, so he was the first to show that mast cells known for causing allergic reaction are critical for inflammation, especially in the brain, and are involved in a number of inflammatory conditions that are worsened by stress, such as allergies, asthma, eczema, psoriasis, migraines, multiple sclerosis, and most recently he's been looking at autism. Uh, and he's also showed the connection that corticotropin-releasing hormone, neurotensin, substance P, are peptides secreted under stress 
that act together, releasing interleukin-33 to trigger mast cell and microglia to secrete inflammatory molecules. Uh, and then he's gone on to demonstrate that these processes are actually inhibited by novel flavonoids, specifically luteolin and tetramethoxyluteolin. Uh, and he's formulated dietary supplements and actually holds patents on uh, these products. And he's been making them available to us clinicians as well as the public for some years now. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about all things mast cell activation syndrome and then beyond that histamine uh, related conditions in general. But you know Dr. Theo before we jump into the meat of our talk today I just wanted to ask you you know being so firmly entrenched in you know the hallowed halls of, of academia and science and you know doing your graduate work at Yale which is a pretty conservative University as well as now you're in Tufts. You know, how did you leap over to studying botanicals, to studying flavonoids? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, it takes me back actually to, uh, good Lord, uh, 1972, 1973. Uh, when I was doing my actually doctorate work uh, at Yale, which I started before medical school and then I went back to it, I studied basically a drug that we can probably talk a little bit about later, which is called disodium chromoglycate or chromoline. Yes, right. And of course, it's known as gastrochrome. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I was looking at the structure of that. In fact, my first publication ever, uh, before I even graduated, was in science uh, on chromoline. So I looked at the structure of chromoline, and uh, chromoline was very difficult to put in solution. And it, it also wasn't really that good of an inhibitor of mast cells, even though it did inhibit rat mast cells very well, but did not inhibit human mast cells huh. almost at all, to which we can actually return later. So I did a computer search using a structure, chemical structure library, and it appeared, if you just imagine chromoline being a butterfly with two wings, yes. each of the two wings is 90% similar to flavonoids. Oh, fascinating. So, so I started thinking about flavonoids, but of course, at that time, as you correctly stated, my professors were very conservative and they didn't even you know, want to consider uh, thinking about flavonoids. Uh, I might remind you, uh, well, not that you should know, but uh, I had two mentors. One was Bill Douglas, who was a member of the Royal Academy of Sciences in England, and the other was um, Paul Gringer, who got the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 2000. Uh, and my external examiner for my PhD was George Pallade, who had just received the Nobel Prize. So you can imagine, you know, the climate right. at that point. Right. So, so I kind of tucked it away and I was thinking about it and then came uh, to Tufts. And strangely, in 1998, um, I got actually a phone call from the wife of Dr. Middleton. Now, you may not know the name, but the classical textbook of allergen and neurologic diseases is Elliot Middleton. And, and I was absolutely surprised because Dr. Middleton had written numerous papers on flavonoids and mast cells. Ah. But as it turned out, he had just died. And his wife said that he had actually left in his will, which absolutely flabbergasted me, that I should actually write a review to finish his work. And I was ah. like, oh, wow. Ah. So make a long story short, I worked for two years and my review on flavonoids was published in pharmacological reviews in 2000 and has received about 7,000 citations, just that alone. Then, from then on, it was nonstop. So wow. let me kind of stop there so we can pick up the rest. Yes, yes. And I can give you some other stories later. 
Yes, it's extraordinary. Really, thank you for sharing that, Pearl. It's just, it's amazing to me how these, you know, the, your, the, the journey connects. But let, let's, let's just jump into mast cell activation syndrome. And, you know, what is it? And just distinguish it from, you know, the, the growing, it seems, family of histamine-associated conditions like allergy and, you know, intolerance and all the others. I think I'll start by using the title mast cell diseases. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I actually, I'm going to be the keynote speaker in Halifax, Canada on the 16th of September, invited by the Canadian uh, Allergen Clinical Immunology Association. And the title is actually mast cell diseases. Now, why I start with that? Because as you know, mast cells are involved in a number of diseases that we know very well, such as atopic dermatitis, such as, you know, rhinitis, such as asthma. Um, and then we have the more rare conditions such as mastocytosis, mm -hmm. where by definition you have to have a lot of mast cells clustered in islands in your bone marrow, and their shape, rather than being oval or round, tends to be spindle-shaped. And the only known specific molecule associated with mast cells, tryptase, has to be high. Mm. But even with that, there are conditions where we don't know what to call them. For instance, in interstitial cystitis, which is otherwise called bladder pain syndrome, mm -hmm. we have bladder mastocytosis. In yeah. fact, we have almost identical conditions to what we see in the bone marrow, but in these patients, tryptase is not high and the bone marrow is not involved, yet the bladder is involved. In Europe, bladder mastocytosis is one of the criteria for calling someone having interstitial cystitis. In the United States, my colleagues don't use it because they don't want to biopsy the detrusor muscle uh, in fear that they might actually perforate. Mm. And then we have conditions where we suspect mast cells are involved, such as myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, such as fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. And then we have conditions such as cancer, where around solid tumors, we have collection of mast cells as well. So technically, all of these involve mast cells to one degree or another. But the strange thing is, and that's what the word and the term muscle activation is very confusing to everybody, yes. including myself, because you can have therefore either normal number of muscle cells or a high number of muscle cells. We call it a muscle cell load. But at the end of the day, you could have a lot of muscle cells, but if they're not actually stimulated by anything, then probably nothing's going to happen. Uh, and in fact, what we call indolent systemic mastocytosis, so these individuals do have high tryptase in their serum. They do have actually positive bone marrow biopsy, but they live actually, they have a normal lifespan. Mm -hmm. And the only problem is that they have a lot of symptoms derived from mast cells. So some years back, uh, Dr. Jem Aiken, who was uh, in Michigan, that he went to Harvard and he's back in Michigan, and Peter Valen from Austria, decided to call a condition mast cell activation if in fact the mast cells seem to have been activated, and we'll, we'll talk about the word activation in a second, okay. without necessarily, however, having either atopic dermatitis or asthma or bladder mastocytosis or cancer. You see where I'm going? Yeah, yeah. So in other words, you exclude all those conditions and you're left with patients that have all the telltale signs of mast cell activation, but we don't know what to call them. And then they made the diagnosis is even more complicated because they said you could either have mastocytosis with mast cell activation or you can have mast cell activation without mastocytosis. 
So in other words, you could have systemic mastocytosis, but if you don't have symptoms, you, you live your life, so to speak, and you have a pathologic diagnosis. But if you have symptoms, you have mast cell activation. So therefore, mast cell activation is, mo is mostly a description, even though it became an entity, because as I said, you can have mastocytosis with mast cell activation, without mast cell activation. Now, having said all of that, the, the real problem was how they defined it. And yes. now, it's get, now it's getting worse. Yes. Because the definition had four criteria. You have all the symptoms, meaning your flush, you have um, you know, itching, you might have headaches, some diarrhea, everything that is associated with basically muscle activation. That if you take some of the drugs that we have to use, such as antihistamines, such as antileukotrienes, you know, steroids, if you do better, that's the second criterion. The third criterion was that during an episode and within a window of four hours of the episode, serum tryptase should be elevated, which wow. I think is absolutely useless yes. because I've never had a patient who can manage to have serum drawn during an episode yes. and send actually for measurement of tryptase. There are only a few labs in the United States that do that. So clearly, hardly any patient will qualify unless you happen to be in the hospital at that time. And the fourth criteria, which was a little more useful, was measuring breakdown products of histamine and prostaglandin. And the breakdown product of histamine would be methylhistamine or methylimidazole acetic acid, which is abbreviated MIA, or the breakdown product of prostaglandin D2, which is 17 beta prostaglandin F2 alpha. And the urine has to be 24 hours and it has to be kept cold and sent to the lab cold. I had numerous patients where the uh, urine actually came to room temperature and it was useless. Uh. And the only lab that does that, that I trust, and we even Harvard sends it there, is actually the Mayo Clinic, where Mayo. Dr. Butterfield is. Okay. Now, for some reason, even though, as I said, there will be a, a whole day workshop on uh, September 7th at NIH, sponsored by NIH, specifically IAMCAS, about 15 uh, colleagues, including actually uh, Dr. Jamaican and Peter Valen, who's the first author, and a whole bunch of others, wrote this letter, which is now in press. If you go to PubMed, you will see it, where they basically try to do two things. And one thing is, I think, legit. The other, I think, is actually a disaster. So the legit part is that they're pointing to the fact that everybody now is flooded by patients that come in and they say have muscle activation syndrome. Yes. In, in fact, I have colleagues or bona fide allergies who beg me not to send anybody because their practice is collapsing, because they cannot recoup through insurance and takes much longer and they don't know what to do, etc. Yes. Yes. So they're, they're paying attention to the fact that we have to be a little more cautious about who really has this syndrome. So far, so good. But then they drop the fourth criterion, which is actually the urinary metabolites. Uh. And Dr. Butterfield had published a very good paper, and I'm sorry that he's actually one of the 15 authors of this letter, where he had shown, he took actually both tryptase as well as uh, in the serum, as well as methylhistamine and PGF2-alpha, uh, and he actually said that the combination of methylhistamine and PGF2-alpha was the best uh, possible way of selecting these patients, and through all of those, the prostaglandin metabolite was the best. Not tryptase, not histamine or methylhistamine. So having said that, now we're stuck. 
that hardly anybody will qualify as MCAS uh, uh, going forward, which is sad because the mastocytosis society had tried very hard and MCAS is included in the insurance, uh, basically, uh, you know, jargon. So you can actually have tests covered. Now, in addition, which is really what worries me most, and I've been saying this, is that even though tryptase is the only specific molecule for mast cells we know, what good does it do if, number one, it's not elevated in most patients with right. MCAS, and in addition, we have no idea what it does, and we have no way to, to block it. So my take was, and this is what I will be saying at this conference as well, sure, tryptase is specific, but at the end of the day, if a patient does not have any other serious problem, like inflammatory bowel disease or you know, lupus or something like this, if any mediator that can come from the mast cells is high, that's good enough for me. And yes. I don't care about tryptase. And in fact, I wrote a letter to their letter. We'll see if it's accepted for publication. And I reminded my colleagues that both I had published uh, about 10 years ago and then two years later, Dr. Metfall, who has been the, in charge of the um, muscle biology section at NIH, and then uh, Dr. <clears throat> Escribano uh, just two years ago from Spain, that interleukin-6 levels in the serum of patients with mastocytosis actually track with disease severity oh, and really? prognosis better than tryptase. And I reminded them that we all published three different people, different cohorts of patients, and yet no one is talking about it. So having said all of that, and I gave you an earful, I don't know which way the field will go. But as far as I'm concerned, if someone has the symptoms or that are reminiscent of muscle uh, activation, I will treat them as such, unless there is another reason why. Now, you can either ask me a few questions or I can go into what would be the reasons why, if, if you want. Well. Um, that was a that that was just a really remarkable introduction, and you've already covered some of the labs. Let me just say that interleukin. I just want to let me just flesh out some of the lab pieces, and then we'll jump back into the presentation um, and and what else we might be looking for because I think that's incredibly important. But I just want to underscore some yes. of what you've said. Yes. So, for instance, we can easily get. Um, interleukin-6 at a standard reference lab like Quest or LabCorp. Correct. So that would be a great marker for us to consider tracking. But Correct. you said that that tracks with tryptase, however, which... No, would... no, 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 no. I said it tracks with severity of disease, ah, so, okay. while tryptase does not. Okay. Oh, oh excuse me. Th thank yeah, you for so that. I, really... yeah, I consider tryptase an indicator of mast cell load. So if someone has mastocytosis and they have a lot of mast cells, there will be a lot of a lot of tryptase, yes. you know, of course. Well, and I haven't seen, you know, I've measured tryptase plenty of times in my mm -hmm. exploration around this, and I don't, I've, I think I've seen one nudging towards positive once, but everything else is clearly negative. Correct. And, and, now, that, and that four-hour window, of course, as you pointed out, is impossible. It is. Now, be before we go on to the measurements, as you know, uh, another colleague who actually is from Dr. Metcalf's laboratory at NIH a year ago published a paper in uh, the journal Nature, and now he calls a new entity, which is actually high tryptase. He calls it tryptosinia. Uh, interesting. I don't know if you've heard about it. I haven't. That's fascinating. Okay. And that that is actually even more confusing because, number one, the levels that he considers high enough for him to call a patient having tryptosemia yes. are, below the, 
are below the cutoff point. Oh, isn't that in interesting? In other words, 14 or about 14 is the cutoff point. Yes. Most of these patients hover at about 10 to 12, yet you call that a new entity, if you wish, even though it's below. So if it's below, then why don't we call the MCAS patients, you know, tryptocemic patients? Right. You know? The only difference is that in his studies, and the study was very good, those patients with tryptosemia, even though, as I said, is below the cutoff point, were familiar. So for some reason, they were tracking the same families, which makes it a little more interesting. Yes. That's I just wanted to mention that that's out there. So if you hear it, you know, don't get confused. It's not AMCAS. It's something else. It is, well, you know, we might be seeing that in practice, though, because I, have, I have seen... I, you know, a couple of patients nudging up in that direction, but Correct. by and large, I found the the test to be entirely useful. I agree. I agree. Um, we can get we can get N-methylhistidine and we can get 17 beta prostaglandin alpha, and but but given the fact that they have to be maintained cold, the patient obviously yeah. has mm -hmm. to be really correctly educated, and I'm right. thinking that it's probably best for us, the clinicians, to mail it cold to Mayo rather Correct. than giving it to Quest where it might be improperly handled? I, I don't trust Quest for the, for, for the urine metabolites, to be honest. Okay. All right. So we want to send it directly to Mayo and, and pack it as, right. they, as they tell By us. By the way, I, what I've done recently, um, and, and I've done that more, as you probably know, I see a lot of patients in Greece and Cyprus. By the way, if any of my colleagues, our colleagues, or any of your patients want to have a really nice vacation and yeah. get everything done. Yes. They can come to Cyprus for 10 days. They can have a gorgeous vacation. Oh, my gosh. We'll get all the labs on day one. By day 10, they'll have all the results back, and we'll tell them what to do. Well, I think I've just uh, developed MCAS myself. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, come, come join me. I'll, I'll be there in the first two weeks of October. That's wonderful. Uh, that sounds like a great... The a reason great. I mentioned it is because what I'm about to say, I did actually there. I collected both 24, uh, from, from Cyprus, we sent it actually to a lab in Germany, uh, which is very good for, for measurements. Mm -hmm. And uh, we collected both 24-hour urine as well as first morning urine. Okay. And unless someone, you know, has, uh, you know, nocturia, uh, the results were about the same. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So that makes it much easier for a patient because roughly the first morning urine collects at about eight hours worth of urine during the night. Yes. And, and we got the same results. Now, looking at your questions, I just wanted to mention, I never measure histamine in plasma. Okay. Histamine is degraded within one minute uh, in the blood. So unless we have basophils, which are very similar to mast cells, secreting, I never use it. Okay. As you know, there's what is called a, a basophil uh, uh, activation test. Yes. Uh, some laboratories call it actually, most properly, anti-IG receptor test. I only mm -hmm. do, do that if, if I suspect autoimmune um, uh, uh, sort of uh, eczema. Uh, as you know, atopic dermatitis, 50% of it is allergic, 50 is not. And if I worry about it, then I might actually do that. Okay. So when you ask whole blood histamine, uh, you say about 70% upper limit improves the sensitivity of the test. I never measure histamine. Okay. Um, uh, so, okay. Uh, IgE, I always do. Uh, many patients have very high IgE. That does not mean that they will have mast cell activation. Uh, but that's, for me, a telltale sign to look for other reasons that they might have problems. And uh, as you know, the 
in mastocytosis and in mast cell activation patients, the incidence of allergies is about the same as in the general population. So it is all the other triggers that actually trigger the mast cells in both mastocytosis and mast cell activation. Oh, interesting. So you can so, see so, two separate conditions that are both correct. mediated by histamine and similar cytokine. Correct. Um, the only difference is that in systemic mastocytosis patients, they can have this 15 times higher chance of having an anaphylactic reaction to wasp stings, oh, wow. to heminoptera stings. So that is different than the general population. Uh, and, and for some reason, only for heminoptera stings, not anything else. That is fascinating. Now, when I actually am presented with a patient that has especially headaches and diarrhea as well, mm -hmm. uh, there are a few things that I absolutely uh, want to measure. One is parathyroid hormone. Uh, we and others published almost 20 years ago that PTH is a very strong trigger of mast cells. So I want to make sure, especially if you know, someone's calcium is a little high or in the urine or in the blood, that I want to make sure that uh, I'm not missing that. Also, there are benign VIPOMAs that release vasoactive intestinal peptide. Yes. So if a patient has a lot of diarrhea and I cannot figure out, you know, what is going on, I will measure VIP. And those, both LabCorp and Quest can measure those. But is that, would you say that those are common underlying causes? No, they're not. They're not. Okay, so those but are if, the outliers. Right. But if I have intractable leaching, for instance, yes. and I don't know what on earth is going on, and antihistamines don't seem to be helping very much, yes. uh, then at least I want to make sure that I'm not missing something that might be correctable. Okay. Uh, also, if someone has a lot of headaches, and all of these patients are miserable vis-a-vis -vis headaches and, and migraines, I will measure the molecule that's called CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide, because not only is a very strong trigger of mast cells, but as of a few months ago, uh, there is now a CGRP receptor antagonist for prophylaxis of migraines. Oh, interesting. And finally, if someone has a lot of edema, and many patients actually yes. do have edema, yes. I will measure both bradykinin mm -hmm. and D-dimer. Uh, bradykinin because, again, it's a trigger of mast cells and it's associated with edema, but we also have bradykinin receptor antagonist. And in Europe, D-dimer which routinely we measure if we suspect, you know, sepsis, clotting, whatever. In Europe, D-dimer is one of the uh, well-established um, indices of, of edema. Oh, interesting. Okay. okay, so I kind of went a little off topic here. But so that's... Take you know, me back on track. Yeah, that's, that's actually great. And we will have the transcript, folks. It's there available to you in the show notes so that you can comb through this and pull out some of these pearls for um, laboratory assessments. It's, it's extremely useful. Now, if I heard you correctly in your introduction, um, it, it seems to me that many, if not most, chronic conditions that we're seeing in clinic can have mast cell involvement. Would you say that's true? Absolutely, yes. Okay. So now, for the, what do we do about it? <laughs> like, okay. I know that, All right. So we're jumping a little bit ahead. I know uh, we are. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. Okay. I know, I know I'm, I'm cognizant of the time, uh, uh, too, actually. But Well, well okay. Yeah. yeah. Let me um, actually, before, I don't want to jump into treatment. I just, I, sure. I guess what I want to say is, but like in terms of our diagnosis, so a patient comes to me with cardiovascular disease, I'm going to be thinking 
putting it in my chart, you know, down in, in the, in the assessment or in my differential, I'm thinking about mast cell involvement, but like what, I guess, so we know it's involved in everything and we're going, we will move on to discussing treatment. That's incredibly important because I know that you've got a lot of pearls to offer us there, but in terms of, you know, the standout mast cell conditions can we just again go through when am i going to be as opposed to being perhaps like a secondarily involved in the pathogenesis i mean what are my priority conditions for for for, for patients coming to me oh i hear you and i'm about to answer but why did you bring a cardiovascular uh, patient as an example well, you know, I guess the reason that I did is because as you gave your, you know, elegant introduction to, you know, mast cell involvement, and I think also just having, you know, looked at some of the papers, it seems like it's, you know, a potential, it's a okay. potential pathogenic piece of... No, no, you're right, you're right. I just thought you might have a particular question in mind yes. because I can actually address the cardiovascular disease patient. So first let me say, um, by starting so pedantic that, uh, that I apologize. If I see anybody, especially children, but adults, with black circles under their eyes, unless they haven't slept for a week, that's a telltale sign they have an allergic uh, sort of diathesis. Let's yes. call it that. And uh, you, know, you can call them moonshiners, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't think I've missed any patient in, in, in 30 years that, that literally didn't have that. Uh, now, in addition, I will uh, scratch every one uh, of those patients under the uh, underarm with my nail to see if I can elicit a derriere sign or dermatographia. Yes. Mm -hmm. And most of these patients that have, uh, you know, the, the dark circles will actually respond. And we... That alone indicates that the muscles in the skin respond to pressure, which yes. has nothing to do with allergies. Okay? So those patients are likely to have mast cell activation of some sort, yes. because by definition, the muscles are activated by pressure. Uh, and then I will start chasing those down. Whether they're presenting, uh, so if they come in, let's say, with a cardiovascular problem, but you know, in the history, they tell you, well, you know, I, I get beaten by, by a mosquito and I get a you know, huge, actually, uh, swelling, uh, you know, I get diarrhea, I, I scratch like crazy every now and then, etc. All of those are telltale signs of something is happening. Yeah. So I will do, obviously, the Ig levels, and they might be important for treatment, which I will come to. Mm -hmm. I will definitely do a rust uh, test uh, for at least um, uh, ten antigens. Okay. So I will cover, you know, obviously casein, gluten. Uh, I always cover alpha gal which is important in meat, as oh, you know. Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we didn't yeah. used to do that, now we do. Yes. Um, of course, I'll cover, you know, some pollens, depending, you know, what the patient says. And I will definitely cover at least uh, five uh, fungi, uh, okay. molds of some sort. And what do you uh, think? I mean, area-specific for the, for the various molds? I would say area-specific, but some molds are actually common in pretty much every house uh, to some extent, so I'll cover those. We can, I mean, I can send you the list if you want. Yeah, we can but, print it in the show notes. Sure. But, uh, and by the way, the journal Clinical Therapeutics, which is online, so anybody can actually download for free. Uh, last June, the issue actually was about mold and immunity. And I had a, uh, I think I sent you the PDF. Yes, yep, yeah. we have that. I so, have that. Yeah, and I by the way, if any of our colleagues uh, want to download anything, uh, you can actually give them, um, you know, my site. It's a little corny name, but it's mustcellmaster.com. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all my presentations and, and publications and what have you uh, are there that can be downloaded from there. Perfect. Yep. Um, we will absolutely okay. list that. Go so, ahead. So, um, you know, going back to the, the so, so I'll cover some fungi, but in my experience, about 80% of the people that have problems turn out to be negative on, on rust. Yeah. And, okay. and then I will at least do a food intolerance test, even though many of our colleagues don't believe in the food intolerance. And yes. I'll tell you why they don't believe it. Uh, I find it actually very useful with two caveats. Uh, so the two caveats. One is that most laboratories measure IgG4. Yes. Uh, but I like to measure IgG1 and IgG4. Mm-hmm. And I've sent actually... Uh, 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 blood to three different labs from the same patient and the results were very different and the one that measures IgG1 and IgG4 uh, ended up giving me the fewer sensitivities which I believed were actually closer to the truth. So I have nothing to do with this lab and there may be more but one is called PINER test P-I-N-N-E-R in New York Okay. and they will send basically a kit uh, you basically you know, uh, stick your finger just like uh, doing uh, you know, sugar testing. You send it back to them and they send you the, the results. Oh, that's great to know. Um, that. Yes, I agree with you that IgG1 and IgG4. Right. And, and now I tend to measure total IgG1 and, and IgG4 as well, if I really suspect. Oh, you do? Okay. Yes. Now, the second caveat is that if someone eats for three, four days or longer, the food substance you suspect, it turns out to be false positive. I've seen it numerous times. So I ask patients not to eat most of the things I suspect for about three days before giving blood for a food intolerance test. Uh, so if you eat uh, like an egg every day, it will turn out to be positive. Now in children, this becomes a little difficult because you don't want to starve a child. So I usually tell uh, families the most innocuous uh, substances that I hardly ever see any sensitivity uh, would be rice and chicken. So you can feed a child rice and chicken for three days and do all the rest. Yes. So but now wouldn't the reference range control for exposures? Well, it, it depends what you mean by control. You know, many labs will give you, you know, uh, horizontal line that goes from, you know, uh, green to red. Others will give you three pluses. It all varies. Others will give you numbers. Uh, usually, if the numbers are below 20, I don't, in those lab tests that they give you numbers, I almost don't pay attention to that. You know, if something comes out 140, you know, then I start worrying about it. Okay. But it's, it's you know, officially, the academies don't believe in the, in the food intolerance test. Right. So I understand. But tell, we, tell me why. I mean, I know that they well, don't. They, but. they don't because, number one, no one has done really good testing yes. uh, and, and shown the results, to be honest. Um, and second, because most of the labs measure IgG4 and it turns out to be positive to everything under the sun. And it's almost unbelievable. Hmm. Um, so um, I, I guess that. Okay. okay. I, I think it w- eventually they will move away, especially as we're learning more and more about IgG1 and IgG4. And clearly the muscles can be activated through an IgG receptor as well, not just the IgE, in addition to all the other 100 different triggers. Yes. So I just want to clarify a few things uh, for myself and for the listeners. Um, So so you'll see 
the allergic bias in many of the mast cell activation patients, but it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a significant player. One of the ways that you actually distinguish that IgE, IgE involvement is less significant, if I heard you right, is by you know, just doing the skin test and seeing if you can locally activate mast cells by basically well, just you scratching. Can, you, can, you can do the skin test, but as you know, pretty much if the rust turns out to be positive, the skin will be yes. positive. And in fact, you know, many colleagues for good reason want to do the skin uh, to absolutely document that there is actually uh, an allergy. But most of the patients that are MCAS, at least patients, and many of the other categories that we mentioned are not positive. And that's why many of you know, our colleagues, the allergists, will just send them away and say, you're not allergic. Right. So what, what are you? That's, that's where kind of we end up talking about activation and yes. we got stuck with the trip days. So coming back to your patients, if someone has telltale signs over and beyond the presenting uh, you know, disease, let's say that you might have a possible diagnosis, whether it's cardiovascular disease or pituitary tumor or whatever, I will follow the mast cell activation in whatever way I can, and we covered some of those. Um, now, if someone, someone's presentation is even more uh, suspected, for instance, uh, both, uh, you know, um, I and other colleagues um, have, uh, have published that one can have a presentation of a myocardial infarction because of activation of mast cells in the coronaries. Fascinating. Okay, that's well documented. Yeah. So if it appears that someone had what might have been a myocardial infarction, but it happened because he was stung by a bee or because, you know, he, he ate something, yes. then clearly that will become, the muscles will come way up at the top of my list now. Mm -hmm. Even though the presentation was as an MI, yes. for instance. Uh, or if someone comes up with an explosive diarrhea and they don't have you know, C. difficile or something else, Yes, I will definitely think of mast cells or a VIAPOMA or, which I wanted to cover anyhow, I need to screen for carcinoid syndrome. Because okay. as you remember, carcinoid syndrome is due to enterochromaffin cells, which yes. are very much like mast cells, but they release primarily serotonin. So that's associated with enlargement of the right heart because serotonin is broken down in the lungs, so nothing happens to the left uh, heart. So you get flushing, tremendous flushing, migraine headaches, um, uh, and, but you don't get as much scratching. So that's kind of the differentiation. Mm. And there, uh, we measure chromogranin A in the blood. Okay. That's, if you have chromogranin A that is high on at least, I usually do, if I suspected, three measurements over six months, because it can be episodic and we might miss it. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you do find it high, then you have to send 24-hour urine or maybe first morning urine for uh, uh, methylidinazole acetic acid. Uh, now it's hydroxyindole acetic acid. So the two are confused. So MIA is from histamine and 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid, 5-HIAA mm -hmm. is for serotonin. If those uh, turn out to be high, then you've got to do actually an MRI of, uh, you know, at least the abdomen to try to locate where the, uh, the tumor might be. One thing to keep in mind is if anybody is on histamine 2 receptor antagonists like famotidine or ranitidine, mm -hmm. especially ranitidine, chromogranin A gives you a false positive. Ah. So I will uh, stop uh, any uh, H2 uh, inhibitor for at least uh, three, four days before looking for chromogranin A. 
Okay. Okay. Let's you you take me back. Okay. All right. Um, well, let's talk about. Let's just talk about uh, the well. First of all, you would would you say? I mean, you've been studying mast cells for decades now. Would you say that there's a collective rise in the incidence of mast cell associated conditions happening? Uh, uh, yes, I, I think there are three factors. Uh, one factor is that we always focused on just histamine. And what is surprising to me also being a pharmacologist is that even though histamine, the first antihistamines were developed in 1947 or so, we really haven't done any much better in terms yeah. of antihistamines. We still don't have good mast cell blockers. Okay. Now, as uh, we'll, we'll talk about those when we talk about uh, treatment. But as science moved forward, and now we know that there are cytokines released, chemokines are released, peptides are released, etc., uh, we're becoming more and more aware that we might be able to pick up muscle activation through those. For instance, I think I might have made an enemy uh, of a good friend, uh, uh, Dr. Marcus Maurer in Charité Hospital in Berlin, uh, because, uh, and his colleagues, his boss actually, uh, primarily, because um, three years ago, they wrote uh, a very large review in experimental dermatology on the reactivity of skin mast cells. And they're very good scientists. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so the journal asked me to write an editorial. And uh, the title of the editorial, which was a little offensive, I guess, was, Are We Missing the Forest for the Trees? Mm. And the reason I said there was twofold. Number one, they were using mast cells from skin from circumcisions because it's very difficult to get actually skin from anywhere else unless you get it from, you know, mastectomies, but then you worry that the cells in the area of the mastectomy might have been affected by the cancer anyhow. So problem number one is that they reported themselves that among about 250 such, uh, let's call them subjects from which they took uh, the skin, mm -hmm. reactivity to just Ig and antigen just to that trigger, varied as much as 200%. So, therefore, we really don't know, even in normal individuals, why some mast cells fire more than others, mm -hmm. even to just IgE, let alone all the other triggers. Mm -hmm. But the most worrisome part for me was that, at least in my 30 years of experience, I've never seen anybody, unless they fell into poison ivy, to have actually uh, uh, skin problems on their testicles or on the penis. Right. So, in other words, I've seen many patients with horrible eczema, but not there. Yes. And they might have had eczema on their buttocks, but not there. Mm -hmm. So that means to me that those mast cells might not be responding necessarily as the rest of the skin. Right. And then we know for sure in mice, if I take skin from the back of the mouse as compared to their abdomen, they respond very differently. So all the muscles are not the same, which of course is not surprising. Right. And at the end of the day, how we actually assess, as we started talking earlier, the muscle reactivity should be the most important thing moving forward. And that's what I really want to stress during this upcoming workshop, because we're just stuck for years now in trip days, and we're missing basically the forest for the trees. Right. Because the muscles are being activated. And as you said earlier in your kind introduction, we were the first to show that corticotropin releasing hormone released under stress will stimulate the mast cells, but they will not degranulate. Um, for instance, 
uh, Borrelia from Lyme will stimulate yes. the mast cells, but only cytokines are released. Uh, there are at least three papers on mycotoxins stimulating the mast cells, but only cytokines are being released. No degranulation, um, um, you know, no tryptase release. We published a paper last year in PNAS showing that if we use the peptide substance P together with interleukin-33, yes. which is called an alarming, we go from 10 units of TNF being released to 10,000 units. And wow. yesterday, when another paper accepted in PNAS, uh, there's an embargo, so I can't say very much about it, but the same results are with interleukin-1. So therefore, the mast cells can participate in inflammatory processes by releasing absolutely impressive amounts of both TNF and IL-1 beta. So again, as I wow. had said earlier, if there's no other underlying condition that could explain, and those are high, I will say they're coming from the mast cells. That's fascinating. I mean, because those are just fundamental, you know, cytokines, interleukin-1-beta, IL-6, tumor necrosis factor, yeah. that participate in most, you know, initiating steps of inflammation. I, see, what is amazing, many of the papers, when you see macrophages were activated to release, let's say, interleukin-1, you'll see two-fold increase, three-fold increase. Here I'm talking 10,000-fold increase from the mast cells that no one right. suspected. That's astonishing. It God. is. And, and what really bothers me is we submitted an application to follow up on the results that were just accepted in PNAS to NIH, and the comments I got back were not really science. Uh, you know, one comment was mast cells don't participate in, in psoriasis. Another comment was mast cells will, you know, cannot possibly release IL-1. Well, these are not scientific comments from yes. a body that should be funding work. You know, they should be saying, well, if the preliminary results show that, let them prove it. Well, now, now it will be published in PNAS, but in the meantime, I didn't get any grant, you know? That's remarkable. So. Oh, that's, that's, well, that's too bad. It's really, I mean, it's remarkable what you're uncovering, sort of the breadth and depth of mast cell involvement in a variety of pathology. I'm just, it's just mind blowing. You know, circling back to thinking about Lyme disease and mycotoxicity okay. and the mm -hmm. fact that they're only releasing cytokines as opposed to turning on, you know, histamine and other, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, chemo, you know, compounds involved in the, in the sort of classic mast cell cascade. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what do you have to say about that in terms of of treatment, are you going to be approaching? You know, you treat the underlying mycotoxicity and Lyme. You know, you address the Lyme disease, but in terms of of treating the what appears to be sort of a mast cell activation process secondarily right. to the infection, are you still thinking about the same overall approach that you take for mast cell activation I, in general? I, I, I do. Let me just okay. jump in a little bit uh, here, and and I'll answer it in two ways. One is that especially for diseases where there might be other organs that we have not thought about involved. Uh, let's, let's talk about the brain for a second. Um, one of the, the reasons why I got so excited about the originally about mast cell activation, because in the definition of the syndrome, it included for the first time also neurologic complaints. I'm, I'm quoting. Um, so... And we were the first, well, among the first was a Dr. Uvnas in Karolinska who published when I was a student, and then we published papers on brain mast cells. The hypothalamus and the median eminence that connects the hypothalamus to the pituitary has as many mast cells as our skin. 
Wow. Yet they do not have IG receptors. So oh, obviously they respond, they respond to other things. Yes. And we also showed, this was also published a year ago in PNAS, that, that histamine and tryptase and interleukin-1 and TNF coming from mast cells, and I'll tell you how we did that, activate human cultured microglia, which mm -hmm. as we know are the defenders of the brain because the brain yes. doesn't have T cells and B cells and what have you. So I really believe that in diseases such as Lyme, where there's a lot of, you know, sort of uh, neurological complaints, yes. you know, chronic fatigue and, you know, obviously myalgic encephalomyelitis, as it's called now, yes. uh, you know, post-Lyme syndrome, etc. that the mast cells are activated and they then activate the microglia and they cause a local sort of inflammatory process that literally, uh, excuse the expression, screws up the homeostasis of the body because that's, yeah. that's where it is. And if you now take it a little bit uh, as an extension, hypothalamus or the limbic system talks to the amygdala and the amygdala is what I really think happens in, in autistic patients or ADHD patients. Um, so, and in fact, now we're doing some experiments on, on exactly uh, that. And we showed, I'm jumping short, you know, uh, as an aside, but we, we collected uh, through NIH samples from children that died uh, from car accidents, you know, drowning, whatever, that either were otherwise normotypic or they had uh, autism. And we analyzed with quantitative PCR um, the, the presence of one microRNA, and again, some of you might not remember, but the microRNAs can regulate messenger RNA in the cytoplasm, and one microRNA is particularly pro-inflammatory, and we're showing that it was very high in the amygdala and not in the cortex of these children, and then we showed that when the muscles are activated and they activate microglia, that microRNA goes up as well. So we're linking all of this okay. now through molecules that we never thought about, such as microRNAs. So I think that we'll be finding a lot more. So going back to the conditions, if I could block the mast cells and yes. or block the microglia as well, yes. I will block them. Now, many times students and other colleagues tell me, well, my God, you know, if the mast cell is useful for something, yes. I'm sure it's got some useful functions. <laughs> for instance, mast cell is actually involved in, in wound healing. Um, you know, we can talk about this if we have time, you know, later. You know, what happens? And I give them the reply, uh, which, you know, it's a little corny reply, but, you know, you recall back in the 30s, you know, psychotic patients were put in asylums, and some of you may remember one flew over the cuckoo's nest where yes. they did a lobectomy on someone. Well, during the 40s, you know, one physician from New York was experimenting with various drugs for the potential that might be anti-cancer agents. And he was astute enough to realize that there were not anti-cancer agents, but they were very sedating. And that's how basically anti-psychotic drugs were discovered. And we still have the same blessed anti-psychotic drugs, pretty much. You know, the anti-epileptic, I mean, the <clears throat> neuroleptics. Yeah. So do we know how the neuroleptics work? We still don't really know. They might be blocking dopamine receptors, but maybe not. But the patients are so much better that we don't really worry about them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the approach I will take. Let me block the mast cells, help the patients. And if at the end of the day, we find out in the process that, you know, maybe there could be a better way of blocking the mast cells, uh, then I'll take it. Mm -hmm. And to give you another example, 
mast cells are found around solid tumors. There are 10 times as many mast cells around the breast mm. uh, cancer, for instance. Mm. However, the mast cells in the breast cancer do not degranulate. What the cancer cells do, which is absolutely fascinating to me, is they release molecules that they block the mast cell from degranulating, in which case, you know, tryptase and histamine, whatever, you would destroy it. They block the mast cell from releasing tumor necrosis factor, but they selectively stimulate the mast cell to release vascular endothelial growth factor that wow. makes, of course, new blood vessels, and the cancer can actually feed itself and metastasize. Isn't that remarkable? Well, it would, be, I, inter it was, it would be interesting to actually study the mechanism by which the That's exactly it. Yeah. If I could actually turn the mast cell to do what I wanted, what we wanted to do, yeah. we would have a little microcosm of pharmacology, and we would need to use as many drugs. That's fascinating. So I don't necessarily see the mast cell as only a bad guy. I just don't know you know, how to unleash, if you wish, you know, it's good properties. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, you've been studying them arguably longer than pretty much anybody else is this carefully, really under the microscope. And if you're, you know, seeing how its influence in the pathology of so many different con conditions versus, you know, the benefits of mast cells, it's just... Yeah. It's, well, it's, you, may, you may know that there have been a few reports recently, uh, fairly convincing, that the mast cell has existed for 500 million years. Wow. Uh, jellyfish have mast cells. Obviously, uh, they don't get allergic reactions. Yeah. Lizards, fish, you know, octopi have mast cells. And we really, I and some colleagues believe that the mast cell serve the function of various what turn out to be later developed as systems like hormonal, immune, neural system, etc. Because the mast cell contains all the biogenic amines, pretty much every peptide has been discovered, and mm. we, we published recently, it even releases IL-33, uh, interleukin-33. So mm. back then, maybe the muscle was functioning in various capacities uh, to you know, allow these organisms to sense danger and respond to danger, and as we develop our other organs, muscle you know, became not important anymore, and only the tip of the iceberg, which is the bad sort of aspect of the mast cell, has been recognized. Right, right. So. It's just really remarkable work. But, you know, again, I can see how we would, I mean, you can have that sort of, uh, you can have that, you know, the presentation of maybe classic mast cell activation, you know, with flushing and hives and diarrhea, and et cetera, et cetera. And um, IgE may or may not be present. So there's that classic picture. But then, you know, especially with the neurological piece that you're outlining now, its involvement in um, neuroborreliosis and autism. And I, you know, I don't want to go down this path, but I'm sure that you could talk. Well, I do want to go down the path, but I also, I, I, I want to spend some time on, sure, sure. I want to, I want to get to what we do about it. But, you know, right. in Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and all these I neurodegenerative agree. conditions, I, agree. I mean, I agree. Got, you know, we see microglia activated in all sorts of conditions and is our mast cells participating in the upregulation of you're absolutely right. I teach a graduate course that is called Advances and Failures in Drug Discovery. And I go over about 10 cases over the last 20 years where both the scientific and the financial community were drooling over the discovery and everything failed miserably. Uh, the most uh, recent such failure is Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah. For 15 years, companies have been after amyloid plaques yeah. and they're paid amyloid and tau proteins. They spent yeah. probably close to $2 billion dollars and the last, I mean, the kiss of death 
was two articles in the New England Journal of Medicine about four months ago where yet another uh, study failed. So now everybody's talking uh, the same thing that we, we think is happening in the coronaries, that the plaques might be there, but it's the inflammation against the plaques is that causes the problem and not the plaque as such. Yes. Uh, Dr. Peter Libby, who is director of cardiology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard in Boston, uh, wrote many years ago, and if someone has not seen it, look up Scientific American about 12 years ago. The title is called The Fire Within. And he was among the first to say that even though we have or might have cholesterol plaque, the cholesterol plaque is like cement. It doesn't break off. It might, of course, occlude eventually your coronaries, but the body tries to get rid of the cholesterol plaque and creates a loose inflammatory plaque against it. And it's the loose inflammatory plaque that breaks off and causes the infarct. So you're, you're likely to die from, from the inflammation. And of course, you know, if you close off your, your arteries and you have the inflammation, it's even worse. Uh, but many, many times you don't. And we published a number of papers uh, and reviews that you can have, of course, myocardial infarction due to just coronary constriction without any cholesterol plaque. And the mast cells play an absolutely important role in that. Because in animals, we could not actually uh, make the animals, you know, die. I can put the mice into uh, a stress immobilizer and I can cause actually coronary constriction. And if I use the same thing in mice that are APOE deficient, so they develop actually a little coronary uh, a plaque, they actually just die on my hands when I stress them. Wow. And if I do the same thing in mice that genetically do not have any mast cells, nothing happens. The animals survive. Um, so the muscles do participate and the triggers there obviously uh, are different. They're not allergic triggers. It's whatever you know, cholesterol is doing to the rest of the immune cells that are coming into the area. Anyhow. So the triggers, so I had, you know, I asked you about triggers early. I mean, the triggers are myriad. Yes, they extensive. Are. They are. And not, you know, not related to sort of antigenic material necessarily. Not, it could not, be like, not at all. Not wow. at all. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so as you said, mold, uh, mycotoxins, viruses, uh, uh, um, uh, malaria stimulates the mast cells. We published a paper on this years back. Uh, and then, of course, you have numerous drugs. You have internal peptides, such as neurotensin, substance P, bradykinin. We talked about those. Uh, you've got cytokines, such as interleukin-33. And the list goes on. Yeah, it goes um, on. Yes. Um, well, you mentioned so, earlier um, PTH. You mentioned uh, right. CGRP, et cetera. I mean, it just it seems yeah. it just goes And by on. the way, one of the things that... I, I, I also measure if I have a patient with cancer that also have allergic type of problems, uh, there's a compound, a molecule called adrenomedulin. Mm -hmm. uh, adrenomedulin is released from cancer cells and stimulates the mast cells. So, uh, you know, uh, measuring adreno, uh, adrenomedulin uh, might actually be something useful in patients that might have both, uh, you know, cancer as well as allergic-like problems. Gosh, yes, that awesome. might be a different story altogether. Well, you know, we're I want to get over to talking about treatment now because mm -hmm. and 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 I'm entering into this conversation with you thinking, I mean, especially since you're designing a bunch of really safe and smart interventions, but Thank it's you. like it's like most of our patients probably need to be on some degree of mast cell stabilizing interventions. I I agree with you. Well, that's I, yeah, in fact, I, I tried with a large company that makes like quote unquote energy bars to convince them that it would be worth putting a flavonoid there 
it will make it will be so useful for so many people. Uh, they just couldn't quite see the importance of it. I mean, I remember years ago reading about luteolin as protective against breast cancer, like years right. b- before right. I heard about right. it. You know, that's, that's absolutely true. And in fact, there are even more papers now. And the combination of flavonoids, which I will talk about in a second, vis-a-vis the mast cells, yeah. might be even be- even better uh, for reasons that I will explain. So. Okay, so let's let's get there. You know, we've talked. So mast cell involvement, mast cells probably play a role in most of the conditions we're seeing. So we know that. But we're talking. You know, but the person who presents, um, you know, with the with the class with the with the with the itchy, flushed, you know, the the classic picture. You know, let's talk about how we want to treat them. Okay, so there's no question that we will try at least antihistamines. Okay. Uh, there are three points I want to make with that. One is that many patients cannot tolerate some antihistamines and tolerate others. So I would not give up until I've tried at least three that suit the patient. Point number two is that some antihistamines are much better than others over and beyond where the patients can tolerate it. For instance, my favorite one is hydroxyzine or Adarax. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Why? Even though I will qualify it as I will do for some other antihistamines. First of all, it's, it's much better or more potent antihistamine than anything else in the market. And just to give you a little historical perspective, since you kindly asked me about flavonoids earlier, I was a consultant for the uh, European company UCB almost 20 years ago, where they basically gave me every chemical they had on their shelves, and they said, can you select something that might be a good antihistamine? And what do you know? I selected cetirizine. I did not know what cetirizine was, but if you give someone hydroxyzine, it's broken down in the liver to cetirizine, which is Zyrtec. Oh, interesting. I wish I had money to buy stock in Pfizer at that time. Yeah. Uh, so, now, why am I saying this? Because in certain cases, we need an antihistamine to get into the brain. So the non-sedating antihistamines is because they don't enter the brain. Hydroxyzine does. So if I have someone who cannot sleep at night, who's very uh, uh, anxious person, because yes. hydroxyzine is a little uh, calming as well, yes. uh, or if someone who might be getting up in the middle of the night, even though they fall asleep, hydroxyzine puts you in a deep, refreshing sleep. And even though it might make you groggy the next day, if you take it every day for about three, four days, the sedation goes away. Unlike Benadryl, who yes. will sedate you every day, no matter what. Right. Uh, now, in addition, what is different with Benadryl is that most, unfortunately, Benadryls in the market, unless you get the clear cups, have red color. Yeah. Most patients will respond to the color. And I don't understand how anybody who's interested in treating people with allergies will put color into anything. Right. So I will avoid it. And it's very difficult. Every time I go to a drugstore, I try to find gel caps. Most of the time, I cannot find them. Yes. Uh, so, so that's about those two. Well, no. you know, one of the things I observed clinically with hydroxyzine versus Benadryl was that people who were really dependent on Benadryl tend to get depressed. I mean, I think there's the nonspecific binding, and which didn't seem as significant with hydroxyzine. Is that? You're absolutely right, even though there's another provisor about hydroxyzine. Uh, what happens is, and I wrote two editorials about this, as you know, histamine is very important in the brain. It's a new transmitter. Yes. And it's very important for learning uh, <clears throat> as well as for memory. 
So I hate when colleagues give 150 milligrams Benadryl. The people will end up having dementia, even temporary, because of that. So we really cannot go overboard. And in in some patients, especially elderly patients, you might not you might not need, need to reach 150 milligrams. So I usually try to stay below 50 milligrams if I can. Although, you know, if someone is having an anaphylactic reaction, you'll push whatever you can because you need to at that yes. time. Yes. So you, uh, think, you think low-dose antihistamines actually will preserve the brain? Uh, yes. Okay. So that's safe. why I, I try not to go, as I said, more than 100 at, at maximum. All right. Now, that's if, a pearl. If a child or a patient has a history of seizures or active seizures, then I worry about all the antihistamines and I try not to go more than 50 mm-hmm. because they could, ha- they could make uh, the propensity for seizures worse. Now, the two antihistamines other than hydroxyzine that I like a lot are not available in the United States. Uh, they're available everywhere else in the world, but any compounding pharmacy with a, with, you know, with a prescription will do them. One is, and I'm sure you've heard of it, ketotifen or ketotifen, however you yep. want to pronounce it. Now, that has been kind of called as a mast cell stabilizer. It's not really a mast cell stabilizer. Uh, it's just a very good antihistamine. The, the reason why it's been called a mast cell stabilizer is because there were two publications where they showed using human conjunctival mast cells that it might actually block the mast cells. And from then on, everybody has been calling it a mast cell stabilizer. Even though by mouth it's not available in the United States, it is available uh, as eye drops for allergic conjunctivitis. And sometimes for children, uh, I might actually use that and let them swallow it rather than giving them chromoline, which I will talk about in a second. Okay. The other one is called rupatadine, R-U-P-A-T-A-D-I-N-E. It goes by the trade name rupafin, R-U-P-A-F-I-N. The reason why I like it is number one, it is very strong anti-eosinophilic. Oh. So if someone has eosinophilic esophagitis or gastroenteritis, yes. I'll use that. Okay. Very good. Second, it is also anti-platelet activating factor. Wow. We don't really talk about PAF very much, even though I think it's a very important molecule in, in the allergic kind of problems we're dealing yes. with. And Unfortunately, it's, it's broken down within f- about 15 seconds, so no lab can, can measure it. But we actually showed uh, and published two papers that rupatadine also blocks human mast cells at about 40% or so, okay. which is as much as you get with chromaline, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if one can, can, can get that you know, compounded, for some patients, it might be just, just wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And for your eosinophilic esophagitis and gastritis patients, it sounds great. Okay, Okay. so now let's say we cover the antihistamines and the patient continues to have, you know, itching and and little twitching of the lungs and, you know, what have you. Uh, I will consider actually uh, singular, the antileukotriene, even though it's primarily given for asthma, and clearly for asthma is very important, but I've seen patients actually do respond uh, positively to to singular. Okay. So before giving up, it's 10 milligrams. I'll give it a try. The only downside of singular is about 15% of patients have reported nightmares. So keep that in mind. Okay. If that doesn't work, and if someone has a lot of diarrhea, I will consider chromaline. Okay. Now, why do I say 
diarrhea because chromolin is absorbed from the intestine less than 4%. So it's not likely to get into the rest of the body. If now histamine is released in the gut, histamine will get into the circulation. So you might get some systemic benefits even though chromolin doesn't get absorbed. That's fascinating. So would However, you would you would ahead. you consider chromalin for something like IBD or? I I would even though IBD it doesn't have that much diarrhea. Uh, I I will tell you what I would consider for IBD in a second. Okay. But I might consider it for IBS. Okay. Okay. IBS diarrhea. Yep. Right. Okay. So now there are pr three problems with chromalin. One in the United States is a clear solution. The company doesn't tell you how on earth they can make a clear solution because it doesn't go into water. I'll tell you what I end up doing. In the rest of the world, it comes as capsules with powder and the directions, God knows why, is to put it in boiling water. If you boil actually chromaline, it's gone. So I don't understand what, what <laughs> you know, they're doing. So two years ago, I actually had a contest with my graduate students because I was absolutely puzzled. How on earth does this company in the United States put it into clear solution? So one of my bright graduate students who graduated last year ended up solving the problem. We put 100 milligrams chromaline, which is exactly how much it is uh, in the United States. There, I don't know if you've seen them. They're sort of um, longitudinal uh, clear tubes, plastic tubes, and you basically break the tube open and there's a clear solution in it. Oh. So it, it contains 100 milligrams. So we put 100 milligrams into either water or normal saline and we just put a probe sonicator for five seconds. It went into a solution, and it's still on my shelf in solution. It did not come out of solution. Oh, but the company would not tell you that. In any event, many patients will just drink this, even though you're supposed to put it in water and then drink it for better sort of absorption. Having said that, here are the problems. About 10 to 15% of the people get explosive diarrhea. I had a wonderful young lady in her early 20s who was given chromoly by my colleague at Harvard, and she lost about 20 pounds in two weeks. And I kept on saying, it's the chromoly, and they wouldn't believe me. To stop the chromoly, it was oh, fine. Fascinating. So for some patients, don't get me wrong, if it works, it's wonderful. But in some patients, it doesn't. Okay. About 5% of the people get alopecia. They lose their hair. So that's wow. something to worry about. Yes. And the most typical thing is you get what is called tachyphylaxis. The body gets yeah. used to the drug quickly. So we usually start with 100 milligrams twice a day. And before you know it, in six months, it's 400 milligrams four times a day, and it's filthy expensive. Okay. So just keep that in mind. Okay. Now, before, and we will talk about the flavonoids uh, last. If, if that doesn't work, and if someone has absolutely crazy eating, and we don't know what it is, it might be, as you put on your uh, question, sort of immune or idiopathic urticaria. It may be. But if nothing works, I will try either one or both. There are some reports that low-dose naltrexone may work. Okay. Um, so naltrexone, as you recall, it's uh, basically an opioid antagonist. It's like Narcan that we use for opioid uh, overdoses. And it's been known now as low-dose uh, uh, naltrexone. Uh, LDN, people mm -hmm. know it as LDN. For some reason, I've seen it actually work. I don't know why. Uh, it's counterintuitive because, you know, when we do skin testing, morphine is a positive control because it will cause mast cells to degranulate. So unless these patients have endorphins or, or a or something stimulating them, it doesn't make sense that naltrexone 
will work, but it seems to do so. So I'll give it at least a month uh, or so if nothing works. And okay. finally, especially if patients have elevated Ig, but even without elevated Ig, I will use Zoller, X-O-L-A-I-R. So Zoller is a neutralizing antibody for IgE. It's injectable, uh, one shot on each arm every month, and I'll give it for about three months. And what is amazing is that not only improves allergic, either asthma, because it's approved for asthma and chronic urticaria, but seems to work in activation of muscle cells by other triggers. So for instance, Dr. Maurer in Charité, again, that I mentioned earlier, published a paper that even pressure urticaria seems to be helped. Oh, fascinating. So we don't know why, but it may be, which will be an important point that I will make in a second, that if you reduce muscle cell activation, you kind of raise the bar and then other triggers find a little harder to trigger the muscle cells, however that happens. Now, having said that, we have a lot of evidence that even subclinical, whatever quote-unquote subclinical means, um, <laughs> uh, levels of triggers might be more important than a major trigger for the mast cells. Hmm. In other words, if someone is exposed to uh, you know, a little you know, mycotoxins and yes. uh, get, gets beaten by, by a tick as well, those might be actually worse than getting stung by a bee type of thing. Hmm. It seems like the combination of the of triggers unlocks the mast cell, and now instead of having only the Ig receptor, now it's kind of crowded on the surface with you know 100 different receptors. I'm being a little silly here, but I really I've seen a lot of people who were exposed to a number of things, and from then on, their life changed. They're like yes. allergic to life. So to yes, speak, yes, that. yes. Um, so, so I worry about the small triggers as much as, as a major trigger. As well. well, and I think the triggers can be so varied. I mean, as you were just talking about it again, I was like, I was thinking, you know, what about metals or what about some of the pesticides? Correct. But, you Correct. know, and there's just, and we could go on and on. Well, I, for instance, you're absolutely right. Aluminum triggers mast cells. Yeah. Mercury triggers mast cells. Yeah. Uh, there are reports that glyphosate yeah. uh, triggers mast cells and atrazine, which is another herbicide, also triggers mast cells. Right. Um, so we really have to worry. And one of the things that really bothers me as well, many drugs contain actually, as you know, uh, dyes in order to kind of indicate the, you know, the strength of the pill yes. to make it easy. But those dyes are actually very bothersome. Yes. Um, and some of the preservatives that are used actually, in addition to preservatives like in Chinese food, uh, you know, monosodium glutamate or whatever you can also trigger mast cells. So certainly a piece of the journey with your patients is cleaning up their lifestyles as much as you can. Correct. At yeah. least until they do better. Yes. Once they do better, uh, you know, either the patients will disappear and I don't hear from them again, because as you know, we all mostly hear from patients that have problems. Yes. Or they're going to back, call back and say, oh, I had a horrible problem. And I said, well, what happened? Well, I ate chili last night, you know, that kind of thing. So they'll feel so well then they'll go back to either their old lifestyle or they might actually, you know, take, take uh, you know, a break if you wish. And then they'll see that they're not really entirely out of it and they just have to be careful. Yes. Now, since we, sp so we spoke about mold and mycotoxins, and I really think they're major triggers, uh, at least the, the three things I do with, uh, since there's no way to really, tr I mean, 
I'm not likely to give them antifungals, you know, unless they really have, you know, serious disease. I know there are a lot of colleagues that I put them on, you yes. know, statin or amphotericin B for years. I don't really like that because the whole, you know, GI system will, will fall apart. And I'll come to that, back to that with the flavonoids as well. Okay. So I will consider putting them on caprylic acid. Okay. Anywhere from 400 to 600 milligrams. There's okay. no really downside to that. Yep. Some people don't like it. Overall, I think it's pretty safe. Yes. Um, I will consider also berberine sulfate, mm -hmm. both antifungal and antibacterial, mm -hmm. probably about the same dose. And I might consider a drop or two under the tongue of or, oregano oil, mm -hmm. which is not only very good antioxidant, but it's also antibacterial and antifungal. Yes. Uh, children, of course, cannot tolerate because of a very strong smell. It but, is. You know, adults, adults might. Well, why are you administering it sublingually out of curiosity in just a couple drops? Is that what you said on the tongue yes. or under? Yes, under. under. Rather than how? Rather than how? Well, I mean, sometimes I'll give oil of oregano in capsules or I'll actually. Yeah, but you know, as you know, as you know, under the tongue, it's it's like an injection. That's why yes. we give things sublingual or suppository. Yes, right, to get it into circulation. Correct. And they're very difficult uh, to absorb. Of course, not the oil. The oil is okay. No, I would give them the capsules as well. Uh, it's just that I find it sometimes it works kind of better. I interest. And, uh, That's just fascinating. I, ha I haven't done that. That's well, just try, it, try it and you can tell me. Uh, <laughs> I will. Before, before we finish, because I want to say something about uh, skin, Yes. Skin lotions remind yes. me of the oregano oil towards the end. Okay, uh, okay, I'll, I'll make a note. So, now having said all of that, we published a number of papers comparing, let's say, chromoline, which is the only known muscle blocker, if you wish, to flavonoids. So, in addition to what I said about chromoline, chromoline inhibits histamine release and tryptate release about 30%. So it's not a very good in, in, in rats, might inhibit all as much as 100%, but for some reason not in humans. But it does not inhibit any of the cytokines and chemokines. Mm, okay? mm. So, so therefore, if we suspect those, chromoline's not going to do very much. Anything, right. So we published two papers, one in the Journal of Allergy Clinical Immunology and the other Journal of Pharmacology Experimental Therapeutics, comparing chromoline to luteolin mm -hmm. and to methoxyluteolin. Mm -hmm. Let me give you the result, and then I'll, I'll compare those flavonoids in a second. And clearly, luteolin was better inhibitor than chromoline, both on histamine triptase, and it blocked cytokines and chemokines, and methoxyluteolin was even better. Wow. Now, having said that, let me go back to the flavonoids. <laughs> the flavonoids are basically three benzene rings, mm -hmm. and they have hydroxy groups attached to them. Mm -hmm. Whenever we have a hydroxyl group attached to a benzene ring, we call that a phenolic compound. Okay? Mm -hmm. The reason I'm starting with that is about 15% or so of the general population and as many as 30% of the people that we've been kind of talking about have phenol intolerance. So I will ask patients uh, or the families, if someone gets hyper when they eat chocolate, strawberries, berries, uh, you know, uh, uh, grape seeds, that means they're phenol intolerant. And therefore, I worry how much flavonoids of any kind I would give them. Uh, and one reason to find out, of course, is to do genetic analysis, which I ask for pretty much every one of the patients we're dealing with, because I ask for diamine oxidase. If they don't have enough diamine oxidase, then we can give them a supplement to decrease histamine uh, in the gut. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Do, 
And in fact, I'm sure you know, there's a wonderful site called Healing Histamine. It used to be called uh, Low Histamine Chef by Yasmina that gives you all kind of good you know, sort of recipes and, and tips about, you know, foods with histamine. Mm-hmm. And uh, in case our colleagues, you know, don't know, uh, ripe tomatoes, ripe avocado is loaded with histamine. Cheese, uh, of course, especially smoked uh, uh, cheeses, uh, nectarines, spinach, uh, pretty much all the spices have lots of histamine. So kind of be, be careful. Yeah. Uh, now, going back to the enzymes, uh, COMT, catecholamine orthomethyltransferase, Uh, basically metabolizes pretty much all the biogenic amines, including histamine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's some additional enzymes uh, for histamine. So it's so easy now to do uh, a gene analysis for those enzymes, because as you know, now we categorize patients in slow metabolizers or fast metabolizers. And if any patient is on two or more drugs, especially psychotropic drugs, I will do all the CYP3 enzymes. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that break down pretty much everything, as you know. Yep. Now, coming back to the, uh, to the phenolics, uh, not that you have to remember the structures, but for instance, pycnogenol, which is very uh, plentiful in, the, in, in grapes, has 15 phenolic groups. Okay. Quercetin has five. Luteolin has four. Methoxyluteolin has none. Because basically, methoxyluteolin uh-huh. has four methyl groups uh-huh. in place of the four hydroxyl groups that uh, luteolin has. So if you're looking about phenol intolerance, luteolin would be the least likely to cause a problem as compared to the others. Right. However, when you lose the hydroxy groups, you lose antioxidant activity. Uh. So, so methoxyluteolin is not an antioxidant, but it's a better muscle blocker and an anti-inflammatory. So this takes me now to the combination. Since we always have problems with uh, free radicals, and we want actually antioxidant activity, what do we do? So either I give patients glutathione, which you can give it either by mouth or you can inject it, which is probably the best uh, antioxidant, or I might give them some E, S-adenosimethionine, which is also an antioxidant, or I will, combi- I will combine flavonoids if they're not phenol intolerant. So okay. which flavonoids will I combine? There's a lot of history with quercetin, which has five phenolic groups. And I will combine quercetin with luteolin. And in fact, pretty much every product that I help develop has quercetin and luteolin in various ratios, and I'll explain why. The problem is that many colleagues will give very high amounts of flavonoids. So I know very good colleagues who will give two grams a day, let's say quercetin. Mm -hmm. And some give actually quercetin citrate. And that's even additional problem. Let me explain why. Uh, For instance, Twin Labs has a quercetin citrate and has a a, a number of quercetin molecules. I'll bring up uh, one more in a second. Uh, There's a quercetin ascorbate as well. So number one, if I never give more than one gram a day flavonoids of any combination for two reasons. Number one, if you actually give, the, the flavonoids are absorbed less than 10% from the gut. So let's say we prescribe three grams a day quercetin. Yes. What will happen is it will basically stay in the gut primarily yes. and it will shut down every enzyme in your gut. 
So you're literally destroying your bioflora, or the, the microbiota, if you wish. So on the one hand, we'll be giving, uh, 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 you know, <clears throat> probiotics. And on the other, we're basically killing all the enzymes. Wow. So we're basically just uh, shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, why is it killing the enzymes? What enzymes are you talking about? Like the methyltransferases and stuff? Well, or what, like first which, of all, the, the, first, the, the first round of enzymes on anything that we absorb is in the gut. Then it goes yes. into the liver. And many of the vitamins have to be actually metabolized before we absorb them. Yes. Uh, so I don't want to affect uh, gut enzymes. And one of my colleagues here, David Greenblatt, uh, has published many papers that even juice from citrus, uh, you know, whether it's oranges or <clears throat> grapefruit or whatever, mm -hmm. inhibits basically the oh, yeah. gut enzymes and then it causes problems. Okay. okay. So I would rather give smaller amounts and increase the absorption rather than giving high amounts, hoping that that uh, will do it. Okay. Moreover, if let's say most of what we give, let's say we give three grams a day and 10% is absorbed. Okay. So 300 milligrams or whatever that will also inhibit liver enzymes. Now, that will be a problem because, first of all, as you recall from years back, uh, the problem with cymetidine, tagamet. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, okay? So, in males, it will cause gynecomastia and reversible impotence. Same thing will happen with high dosages of flavonoids. Exactly the same thing. They block the liver enzymes. And in younger girls, it might screw up, again, excuse the expression, their period mm -hmm. or their cycle. So I prefer to give lower amounts and increase the absorption for a longer period of time than high dosages for a short period of time for the reasons I mentioned. And That's this is why in all the supplements we created, we mix them up with olive seed extract. So okay. it's olive seed extract. If you take the olive oil, you're left with a pit, basically. If you crush the pit, you get a little thicker oil. In Europe, that's used for salad dressing. So it's nothing exotic. It, but it's 10 times cheaper than olive oil. So I actually import olive seed oil from Greece to Long Island, New York. And what happens is if you mix uh, a powder with, oil, with any oil, basically, and you give it energy, let's say you shake it or you centrifuge it or you sonicate it, yeah. you create basically liposomes. Okay. So the oil becomes little lipid spheres and yep. it traps the powder inside and we increase the absorption about three to five fold that way. Wow. So this way, and, and you've and you've demonstrated that you've demonstrated oh, yeah, that yeah. We, we've published that in animals, not in humans. Okay, uh, but it's well known that that's what happens. Yeah. Okay. So basically, I prefer to have. Uh, so, for instance, one of the products that's called FibroProtect, and we called it that because I, I I give it a lot of fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue patients, uh, contains actually you know about uh, two hundred milligrams of luteolin uh, and quercetin, and mm -hmm. that way. Uh, if you imagine, let's say you have about 500 milligrams total, but you absorb about you know 50% of that, that's 250 milligrams. If you give one gram, not only you're going to actually screw up your gut, but you will absorb less than 10%. You're basically the same amount, but you're having problems. So you see where I'm kind of I'm going. Yes. And from the cancer field, not from us, there are many publications that if you give quercetin and luteolin together, you get better activity. Um, so so that's why I kind of combined. Uh, uh, the two. Now, two things that I also want to stress with flavonoids. It's the cheapest source of quercetin and luteolin because luteolin comes basically from the same source because it's only one hydroxyl group difference is actually peanut shells. Mm -hmm. However, 
as you know, unfortunately, dietary supplements are not regulated and there's no indication of the purity or the source. Yeah. And most of the cheaper sources would be about 80% pure. So if, if one of your patients is, has peanut allergy and they get it from peanut uh, source, they'll have a, a reaction and you'll never know it. Yes. The second cheaper source is fava beans. And as you recall, about 15% of Mediterranean extraction people, you know, Greeks, Italians, Jews, Northern Africans, whatever, lack G6PD. And if you eat fava beans and you lack G6PD, you're going to get hemolytic anemia. Right. So who's going to tell you if you all of a sudden your creek drops that this might be because of the supplement you're taking? Right. And now coming to the luteolin. You know, ever since we've been publishing on luteolin, uh, now there's all kind of... Uh, formulations on the internet so just before uh, our book <clears throat> are getting uh, on on the air I googled just luteolin supplements okay eight supplements came up not the supplements that I helped develop interestingly enough but some of those have only quercetin and no luteolin most of them have lutein lutein or lutein is not luteolin right Lutein is actually, uh, it, it's very different molecule. The structure is entirely different. Uh, and it's actually a carotenoid. It's a very good antioxidant, but it's not a flavonoid. Yet by searching, half of them that came up had lutein and non-luteolin. Yeah, that's fascinating. Interesting. So, uh, so we just have to be very careful. My take would be, if you're going to give anything to your patients, find out the source and the purity and the amount that they really have and how they analyzed it. Because if they're impure, we're more likely to cause problems uh, than not. Well, what do you think of PEA? Do you think there's a place for it? In okay, now, now it's a different question. Yeah. So I actually like PEA. Mm -hmm. And the, the gentleman, uh, the colleague who actually sort of discovered it, if you wish, um, uh, is a very good scientist in Italy. I have high respect for him. I, you know, I don't know why he got involved with this product adding luteolin where there is really no luteolin there, but nevertheless. Now, palmitoidophenolamide has been published for a number of years, mm -hmm. and in Italy they sell a product, uh, actually they call it Normast, N-O-R-M-A-S-T, that's only palmitoidophenolamide. Now, the, the problem is as follows. If you just buy palmitoidophenolamide from anybody else in the market, it's not going to do anything at all. Yes. They, they actually have a patented formula and they actually microcrystallize it. The publications they have indicate that the microcrystallized palmitoidophenolamide is much better than the powder that you can buy. So judging from the publications, which is what I usually try to do, I think that microcrystallized palmitoidophenolamide is a good product and you can add it on. But you can't now, get it in the States, I would imagine, if it's... Well, now, now they sell it. Uh, they sell it as a powder. So if you look, um, uh, if you go onto Amazon, they sell palmitoidophenolamide as a powder. And for some reason, again, I don't know how they get away with it. They say it helps reducing pain. They don't talk about mast cells. And in fact, the publications they have are about pain, not about mast cells. Um, I have never tested it on mast cells. Uh, there's only one publication in mouse mast cells that seems to be inhibiting a little bit. So mm. in all honesty, I do not know mm. what it does on the mast cells, even though they call it norm must, obviously for the mast cells in Italy. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so that's, that's all I can say. Um, so let me just ask you, I know we're coming to the end here and this has been so information dense. <laughs> I know it's been great, but, um, you know, you outlined the, your histamine approach and, you know, using Zolaire also, you outlined the, your, your pharmaco approach first. Right. Are you starting with pharmacotherapy before you're moving on to the um, flavonoids or, uh, I mean? No, that's a good point. I will definitely start with an antihistamine. Okay. Uh, because that will be also diagnostic for us. Yes. Words, if they do better, yes. they will tell us something is going on. Yes. So I use it both, you know, for both reasons. Yes. And then I will put them on a flavonoid. Uh, you know, my obviously preference would be a combination of quercetin and luteolin. And as I said, I start low because I think time is more important than high dose. Okay. So I'll start them, let's say, with one capsule to two capsules. And then by the end of a month, I'll go to two capsules in the morning, I do at night, and okay. give it about three months. Okay. It's not an antihistamine, uh, but it will, it will basically calm the muscles down. Now, I was not aware of, and I'll give credit to one of my patients from five years ago who kept on insisting, and then this clinical therapeutics journal had a special issue, not this past June, the previous June, about vitamin D. Mm. I now give at least 2,000 units vitamin D3 to everybody. It has very strong anti-allergic effects. Yes, okay. And what is amazing, which surprised me, is even in Greece and Cyprus, there is a lot of sunshine. We have about 40% of people actually having vitamin D3 deficiency. And just to remind everybody, in the skin, we have pro-vitamin D. Sun yes. turns it into vitamin D. But then it has to go through the liver and the kidneys to add two hydroxy groups. So the active vitamin D3 is 1,25 dihydroxy vitamin D. So I actually ask in the labs uh, two things if I suspect, especially uh, also uh, either bone problems, etc. I will ask for vitamin D3 and write out 125 hydroxy uh, vitamin D3. Otherwise, most labs will give you vitamin D, which is one hydroxyl, yes. because it's more stable, which is, again, it's a good reflection, but I would like to know, you know, the bottom line, so to speak. If it's activated, right, right. Correct. So let me just ask you about the histamine diagnostic test. And yes. I mean, are you, anytime you, regardless of the triggering factors, any mast cell associated condition you're concerned about, you're going to use that histamine, antihistamine test with? Uh, I'm, you mean giving the antihistamine? Yes, right, to see how they respond. I, I, I would, because especially yep. if they have itching, yep. my God, you know, 50% of the itching should go away. Yes, yes. Uh, so like, like yeah. for instance, Lyme triggered, mold triggered, maybe chemical triggered, just any... No matter, any, no matter what the trigger, I okay. will give some antihistamine. Okay. And as I said, I'll go through at least three before I give up, just in case okay. I'm missing something. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I nailed that down because I think that's an, a really important pearl on how we can start to tease out, you know, who's got mast cell related um, pathology Correct. or, or Correct. at least that is significant enough that you have to Thank really you. get in there. I, I don't start with antihistamines with D. D stands for decongestant, as you know. Mm. And the decongestant uh, used to, you know, these days is pseudoephedrine. The reason why I, I, I start with just pure antihistamine, let's say, as I said, most commonly I will start with just gel caps of Benadryl um, because we know it so well. Because the 
pseudoephedrine could trigger actually the mast cells as well, which is the D, oh, interesting. which we okay. give for allergic rhinitis. Okay. But unless I absolutely need it, I try to avoid it. Okay, okay. Uh, so. Now, are there any other interventions? I know we've got to we've got to wrap up. Okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go <laughs> any ahead. any other final interventions that you want to measure or that you want to mention in your um? Yeah. Well, if if someone if you find out through the rust test or through the food intolerance test mm -hmm. that someone has actually bona fide intolerances, yes, I will recommend. I don't do it myself, but I will recommend uh, desensitization, whether it's by okay. injection or sublingual. Okay. Uh, so th that's that's absolutely true. Uh, and in fact, I found that, you know, when people are desensitized, many times headaches go away, diarrhea doesn't go away uh, very often, but, uh, but other, other symptoms, you know, might. Right. Um, you know, of course, as I said earlier, if we find out that, you know, PTH is high or bradykinin is high or whatever, then there might be additional interventions. Now, one, one condition that I want to mention uh, that is not very common, but I happen to have a couple of patients at the end of the day, is um, uh, conditions that are they have different names uh, now unfortunately they hijack medicine hijack the name uh, and they're called auto-inflammatory syndromes or sometimes they're called cryopyrin or mediterranean episodic fever uh, yes. and the reason i'm mentioning yes. this is because these notoriously have very high interleukin one beta okay? so we can measure them but the reason i'm mentioning it is one of the presentations is itching yeah. And so, of course, there's low fever, uh, low-grade fever. But, you know, you can have low-grade fever with, with Lyme. You can have, you know, with other conditions. So it's very confusing. Yeah. Uh, so if other things fail, and, and I suspect, especially there is, you know, repetitive high-low, uh, high-grade, I mean, low-grade fever, mm -hmm. I will measure an IL and beta. Okay. And the reason why that would be important is because there are treatments of IL and beta. There are three different treatments in the market. Yeah. There is an antagonist uh, to the recept to the molecule. There is a, a, rece a soluble receptor, etc. So as long as there are ways that we can treat a disease, I don't want to be something that might be treatable some other way. Yep, I got it. Okay. Well, this is. Are, are there any questions from the audience, or they're not allowed to ask? No, there. Well, the, this is the audience. Th this is. Um, pre-recorded and then oh, we're going to release it. Okay, yes, I apologize. That's okay. We will, uh, I'm sure that we're going to get questions and I'll just, I'll just reach out to you with those. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say that if you want to send me questions, I'll be happy to just oh, perfect. either reply to the questions or we can get on Skype and I can just give you the answers if I have any answer. Oh, that's fabulous, Dr. Theo. Okay, so if you want to, um, if you want us to include your contact information in the show notes, we will absolutely do that. Yeah, uh, one last thing I'd like to mention, though that I expect help actually from our colleagues, but as of this July 1st, I have zero funding for research on mast cells anymore. And yeah. it's really horrible and desperate. So the university created a very easy, uh, you know, site uh, mm -hmm. for me. I'd just like to mention it. Yes. Because it might not be our colleagues that might be able to donate, but maybe some patients uh, might be willing to donate. Yes. Uh, once, you know, once you go into the site and you donate, uh, basically you get immediately within seconds uh, a letter from the vice president basically thanking you. Uh, and it's tax deductible. So okay. anything from $1 to whatever. Um, oh, that's fabulous. We will, we, we will include that uh, website, but you can go ahead and give me the URL. What is it? I, I mean, if, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's, it's basically, uh, the important thing, it's all lowercase. Okay. Uh, it has to be lowercase. And it's very easy. Giving uh -huh. dot tufts, T-U-F-T-S, uh -huh. dot edu, E-D-U, forward slash Theo Harides. Okay. All lower, so giving dot tufts dot E-D-U, forward slash Theo Harides, all lowercase. Okay, easy. We'll include that in the show notes and we will include links to your supplement companies. I just, I really appreciate the care that you've taken in your product design and all the yeah. background you've given me today. On One thing I wanted to mention, and yeah. I know we're just about to finish, you have to go, is even though FDA does not regulate supplements, if you export any supplements and you voluntarily ask the FDA to check them that they were made in a good manufacturing practice facility, that the dose, the source and the purity is what you have, uh, what you say you have. They give you a certificate, it's called certificate of free sale. Uh, and all these products have these certificates. Uh, they're renewable every two years. And I can send you actually one of these to look at, but it basically says Department of Health and Human Services, FDA, and it's got a red ribbon on it, etc. So literally yes. these supplements have raised the bar. Uh, and, and that's what we should be doing for our patients, I believe. Yes, that's, I think that's all, that's all reasonable. Yeah, well, I've learned a lot today. Thank you. Thank you for taking me on this tour and everybody with me. Thank you very here. much, and I'm sorry you had to wait so long. Oh, uh, well, it was, it was worth the wait. Okay. <laughs> all right. Say hello to everybody for me. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.